0: Covert Actions and National Security Podcast, a podcast where we discuss a spectrum of activities concerning covert operations, intelligence, counterintelligence, unconventional warfare, assassinations, espionage, spycraft, technology, and more. Now, let's enter the operational world with Dr. Carlos.
1: Welcome back, everyone. We have a great guest today, Fred Burton, B-U-R-T-O-N, former police officer, special agent, and believe it or not, New York Times bestselling author. So we got some great books we're going to be recommending in a little bit. He served on the front lines of high profile investigations like the hunt for and arrest of Ramzi Youssef. Remember him? He was the mastermind behind that first World Trade Center. I hate to call him a mastermind, but anyway, that's what he is. And that World Trade Center bombing, the 1988 plane crash of Pac-1 that killed U.S. Ambassador Arnold Rafael and Pakistani President Muhammad ul Haq and the search for Americans kidnapped by Hezbollah in Beirut, Lebanon. Here's some of the books, folks, just to give you an idea. He wrote Ghost, Confessions of a Counterterrorism Agent, Chasing Shadows, a Special Agent's Lifelong Hunt to Bring a Cold War Assassin to Justice. Under Fire, the untold story of the attack on Benghazi, and today we're going to be reading, talking about his newest book, his fourth book, Beirut Rules, the Murder of a CIA Station Chief and Hezbollah's War Against America. You can tell he's lived kind of a boring life, but anyway, Burton also consults with Fortune 500 companies on security developments. He's the executive director of the OnTech Center for Protective Intelligence in Austin, Texas. So, before we get started, make sure to share, subscribe, and hit that like button. You know we like it. Let's not waste any more time. Welcome to the show, Mr. Burton. Welcome, sir.
2: Thank you so much for having me on.
1: Thank you very much for being here. And again, as I mentioned before the show, thank you very much for your service. This is um, really amazing <laughs> life you've led. And I always like to get to the beginning of it. What got you on the trail of working? You worked as a police officer, so maybe we'll start there. What motivated you to become a police officer?
2: Well, it actually starts a little bit before that, uh, Carlos. I oh, wow. I was uh, a 17-year-old volunteer at uh, my local rescue squad. I uh, got to give them a shout out, the Bethesda Chevy Chase Rescue Squad. And uh, that really gave me the bug into trying to get into public safety. And we had a whole cadre of us that either went fire rescue service or police service. A lot of us went into local police dc police u.s park police and so forth and i kind of went the police route so uh that's really how i got into that space so uh, i look back on that time now and think maybe maybe i should have taken the fire rescue route uh (laughs) but uh you know you can't uh uh you can't turn back the clock i'm afraid
1: no unfortunately not (laughs) Now, how long were you as a uh, police officer? How long were you a police officer?
2: I was a police officer for uh, three years uh, before I went federal. And then um, I was one of uh, what was called at the time, uh, the State Department Enman hires, which was uh, named after Admiral Bobby Ray Inman that chaired uh, the commission to evaluate uh, all of the embassy bombings around the globe. And kidnappings and murders of US diplomats overseas. And so he had recommended that we greatly expand uh, the special agent cadre at the State Department. And so I was one of the first classes of those special agents hired to do that.
1: I'm going to throw some spaghetti at the wall here. (laughs) I've talked to special agents in the past. Was the police work just not satisfying enough? And you wanted to get some more action or?
2: Well, you, you raise a good question. I mean, I've I've always uh, in my heart believed uh, that I was a cop. Uh, and uh, I got to be honest with you and your audience. When I first went federal, uh, I kind of missed the excitement of just running those emergency calls and so forth. But, you know, I had a uh, wise old sergeant that pulled me aside once on, on midnights and said, you know, Fred, do you? You really want to be running around uh, chasing DWIs and running calls when you're 50. And, you know, when you're in your 20s, you can't think of you don't even think that far ahead. Uh, and he said you should think about, you know, the federal agencies. And and so, uh, interestingly, I lived in a uh, small little one bedroom apartment that I got a break on for parking my police car in the parking lot, you know, back back. Back in the day when that actually deterred crime, I'm not so sure it does anymore, (laughs) but uh, uh, I paid $250 a month for that apartment. Uh, Flashbacks. uh, Yeah, really. And so where I lived, I would drive by and there was uh, the secretary of the state at the time, George Schultz, lived in uh, Bethesda, Maryland. And I knew that the State Department had these agents, but nobody really knew who they were or what they did. And everybody kind of thought that they were Secret Service, but they're not. And so I started, these are pre-internet days. I know that's hard to believe for some, but uh, (laughs) uh, so I had to like do my diligence and go to the library and kind of research what actually these folks did. And I said, this sounds like a pretty cool job. So, I applied to the State Department and somehow got hired and uh <laughs> that's you know that's where I started my uh my time as an agent with the state department
1: of uh, curiosity I always like to ask this question when I get the chance. Did you ever get an academy, I'm assuming with the state Department or
2: we did It was uh really um interesting in that we started off uh inside the beltway uh at Uh, Foggy Bottom at the State Department. And our training began there. And then we were shipped off to uh, the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in Glencoe, Georgia, for criminal Mm. investigator training, the 1811 series training program. And then we went back to Washington. And we trained Uh, over in Northern Virginia, and then also at uh, Bill Scott Raceway in Summit Point, West Virginia. And that's where we did uh, a lot of our, uh, well, we did the bulk of our uh, driver training, uh, live firearm shooting training, bomb training there, and so forth. And then uh, after graduation, just as a luck of a draw, uh, Carlos, I... uh, I was assigned to what what at the time was called the Counterterrorism Branch, CT. And What what year uh, was this, Fred, if I may ask? uh, 1985, 86, 86.
1: Okay, so just after the Iran issue. Okay.
2: Correct. And um, and there was actually another agent in my class who had been a, a, a DEA agent for many years and also a New York State trooper. And... You know, when they were announcing assignments, you know, a lot of them went over to the Secretary of State's protective detail because they like to put the new agents there because you (laughs) spend so much time on the road. And you actually had a choice in those days. You could volunteer to be a a diplomatic courier, which uh, was one of the best kept secrets at the time because you made a lot of money in overtime uh and uh a lot of those a lot of those uh couriers back in the day I mean they had homes everywhere and were driving new BMWs and uh just based on overtime but uh so the two of us get assigned to the counterterrorism branch and we report for duty to find out that there's a uh a whole gaggle of three of us together that's it you know we had three of us for the world in those days and uh, our job was to investigate threats uh, against us diplomats and facilities, uh, the killings of Americans overseas. And uh, because I was the youngest or probably the dumbest of the crowd, uh, <laughs> I was assigned uh, the responsibility for the Middle East and uh, took on um, the hostages kidnapped in Lebanon. Uh, you know the bombings of the U.S. embassies, uh, the cold case uh, uh, assassinations we had of our diplomats in in Lebanon, and um, countless hijackings. They they kind of all run together in my mind. Uh, so uh, it was know. it was a different time, you know, in a, in the so-called war on terror, or whatever. You know, we didn't call it that in those days. We were basically just running around the world literally uh doing some basic police work trying to investigate these attacks as they occurred and you know in those days investigating cases overseas you know it's not like what you see in the movies uh you know we were lucky to get help or cooperation from host national government or law enforcement uh you know depending on where the attack took place you know, mm-hmm. there was no no such thing as evidence control or crime scene work. So um, it was a fast learning curve for me. You know, I literally went from riding around in a police car, literally investigating larcenies and vandalisms and your usual burglaries, and then thrown into this international arena. And, you know, I, I've said this before, you know, looking back on my time, I I certainly did the best I could, but uh, half the time, I'm pretty sure I had no idea what I was doing, and I was learning on the fly, so to speak.
1: It's kind of hard, and Lebanon's an interesting place, because if you're not familiar with Lebanon, folks, and Fred can confirm this or tell tell me I'm full of it, but it's really complicated, because there's a lot of different ethnicities going on. You have Christians, you have different types of Muslims. It isn't just one type of Muslim. Am I off on that?
2: No, you're not. And quite frankly, if you look at the tempo of attacks in the late 70s into the 80s, they were relentless, you know, beginning with we had um, our U.S. ambassador kidnapped and assassinated in, in, in Lebanon. We had in the late 70s, uh, we had the U.S. ambassador to um, Kabul, Afghanistan, kidnapped and murdered in 79 we had the U.S. Embassy takeover in Tehran, which everybody certainly remembers. But then we also had a U.S. Embassy takeover and seizure in Islamabad, Pakistan. And then as you move into the early 80s, you know, we had the first U.S. Embassy bombing in 1983, which, which wiped out the CIA station. And then we, of course, started to have diplomats kidnapped. And then in, in March of 94, I'm sorry, March of 1984, we had uh, the CIA station chief kidnapped, which, just to put it in context, think of the 24 by 7 news cycle on the kidnapping and death of US Ambassador Chris Stevens in Benghazi. So here you are in the 1980s, you had embassy bombing after embassy bombing, and you have the senior intelligence officer from the CIA that's been kidnapped. And then we get bombed again in Beirut. So it was like this constant tempo of tragedy after tragedy uh, in Lebanon. And to your point, you know, Beirut was the crossroads of terror. Uh, We had every group operating there from the Islamic Jihad Organization to Abu Nidal to the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. Uh, to uh, the Fatah, to 417. Oh, you know the list just goes on and on and on. Man,
1: yeah, you had a lot going on. Who, what were the most problematic? Was it Shia type groups that were more problematic? Usually, yeah. Well, uh,
2: you really had to pick your poison depending upon your target or your victim because the the list went on, but it took us forever you know again this is before the internet before cell phones and we didn't have the satellite coverage or the human source coverage there so we had this group called this the Islamic jihad organization that we suspected was Hezbollah and then we would argue and 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 talk about this for hours as the degree of Iranian control over Hezbollah and their tentacles into this shady group called the Islamic Jihad Organization. So one of the things just you, I think you will find this fascinating based on, on, on who you are and what you do is we started examining some of the Islamic Jihad communiques and using psycholinguistic analysis on the communiques There was a wonderful man, he's now passed away now, God rest his soul, named Dr. Murray Myron at Syracuse University that was doing a lot of work in this field. And he would examine our communiques for keywords to look at similarities. And we started to draw a good good picture of the author behind these communiques. And we kind of figured that maybe they were Western educated, perhaps even U.S. schooled. Uh, and so we were able to to look at a lot of investigative leads that way, and and the other thing that really kind of developed forensically out of this as a as somewhat of a science for us is when we started to get hostage video tapes. Uh, we lacked the technology to really examine those, believe it or not, in between the CIA and the FBI and the State Department, so. We had to learn and acquire that technology. But then we started breaking down those videotapes to look at background and try to enhance the sound to listen for room noises, and then try to understand some of the language that the hostage would be reading from a prepared text. And then we would cross-reference that with these communiques that we would get from this shadow group. And then we started to draw a pretty good picture of the group that was holding the hostages, namely the CIA station chief, Bill Buckley, and all the other Americans. And we figured out that it was Hezbollah. And it was the same group that had blown up the embassy, U.S. embassy in Beirut twice, uh, had hit the Marine barracks in Beirut, had attacked the U.S. embassy in Kuwait and had carried out these hijackings like TWA flight 847, which resulted in the death of the US Navy diver Robert Stedham. So way before Al Qaeda came along, we had this group that was basically kicking our rear ends, uh, predominantly in Lebanon, but all over the world that we could never get in front of.
1: This is all in your book, if I remember correctly, in Beirut rules, some of this stuff.
2: Yeah. Uh, I, I lay out the history of that uh, with, um, you know, the run up and to try to paint the picture of how much chaos was going on. And in and, and many ways, you know, I've had a lot of people come up to me and say in the course of my book talks and signings and so forth, you know, well, why couldn't you find the hostages? And, you know, we had no human intelligence. We had, we had very little technical capabilities there at, during that time period. Uh, we lacked human sources to tell us where the hostages were being located uh, on any given day. And it was just these intelligence gaps that you could just drive trucks through. And so in the course of my duties as, as a young agent, Carlos, we would uh, go out and debrief these hostages once they were released. So for example, Once the hostage was released, we would fly them from Beirut to Wiesbaden, Germany, to the uh, U.S. Air Force Hospital there, make sure that they got good medical screening, dental screening and psychological evaluation. And then we would start the debriefing process. And there was usually be three of us doing the debriefings. And and, uh, I did a lot of those debriefings. And we started to very quickly learn that instead of these hostages being scattered all over the city, they were actually all held together. And Bill Buckley, the CIA station chief, which my last book is about, he was always kept separate. So for example, if all the hostages were chained to radiators in a flat in Beirut, Bill was stuck in a separate room by himself or stuck in a closet, and, you know, beaten and tortured, and interviewed uh, by uh, Hezbollah. And uh, we, we firmly believe the Iranians too, the Iranian intelligence service. And uh, so we started to draw a picture of that. And, you know, behind the scenes, I'm pretty sure that we would have launched a hostage rescue if we ever could have figured out where they were tactically, the problem was, you know, once a hostage was was released, we actually had a hostage escaped. Uh, Charles Glass, the ABC News correspondent, great guy. Oh, yeah. uh, I'm still in contact with uh, Charlie today. He's, he's a good man. Um, they would move the hostages. So uh, we just lacked the eyes and the ears to be able to find them.
1: Yeah, if you just have the technology of today, huh? Man. Yeah, it would
2: be a whole different ballgame today, though. You know, I I say that and and look at some of the missing hostages that are still unaccounted for. And, you know, some of these places, it's, it's extraordinarily difficult to get a U.S., uh, you know, footprint and to try to try to get eyes on a target. And we just never had that.
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting because when I've talked to other Iraqi uh, military who's gone to Iraq or Afghanistan, the, one of the toughest things for them is actually having the same things happening down in Mexico, now with the cartels. It's becoming hard to tell who's on who's on whose side, who the watchers are, because you can't tell who the hawks are half the time. You don't know who's watching you. It could be just a 75-year-old lady who's sitting on their rocking chair <laughs> who's being paid to scout. <laughs> sure. <laughs> And she says, you know what? We got some weird traffic over here. It's all I see. We got Americans seem to be going out of that building. And that's their intel. It's it's really right. bizarre. You encountered
2: that too? Oh, yeah. I mean, the hostages were, for the most part, uh, being held in the southern suburbs of uh, Beirut, which was Hezbollah-controlled territory. Uh, you know, besides Americans, we had British, French, uh, wow. Irish, Korean, Russian, Uh, we had an Israeli missing uh, soldier as well, uh, that obviously was also treated horribly. And we would always, you know, try to figure out exactly exact timelines and locations where all the hostages were being held together. So it was very methodical and very detailed. And we would show pictures And then back to the videotapes. Uh, Forensically, the videotapes became uh, a lot. We look forward to new hostage videotapes because that enabled us to evaluate that picture of that hostage at that snapshot in time to previous pictures. And then we would look at backgrounds. And it also afforded the docs uh, at uh, Langley and uh, the FBI and the Pentagon to take a look at somebody and say, you know, this person has really lost a lot of weight or give us some evaluation as to the condition of their health care. Uh, so uh, whatever we got a new hostage videotape, uh, it was something that just spun off a whole bunch of new leads and efforts to try to piece together this. And one of the things I'll tell you, a little fascinating uh, rabbit trail that we kind of picked up from that is. I I started thinking, well, I wonder if we have the same cameraman or the same camera person. And that really kind of led down, you know, an interesting investigative path to see what kind of camera was actually being used. And I wonder if they're bringing in a professional camera person or a stringer to maybe record some of these videotapes and edit them for us. So, those are the kinds of things that we were doing behind the scenes in an effort to try to locate where the hostages were. And my mind kind of worked that, you know, methodically that way that, okay, maybe if we could find a camera person, we could follow that camera person or approach them and say, Hey, you know, you want to make some money. Uh, where did you last videotape, uh, the hostages? And, uh, but you know, unfortunately, um, those kinds of leads were uh, never panned out, but we we sure as hell tried, you know, every angle that you can imagine to, to locate the hostages as best we possibly could.
1: I'm sure you did, I'm sure you did. I guess, curiosity, by the way, folks, again, it's Fred Burton, the book we're talking about is Beirut Rules, the Murder of a CIA Station Chief, highly recommend it, fascinating read. Let me ask you, Fred, out of curiosity, a couple of years ago. I think he's passed away. Unfortunately now, really nice man. Dr. Gerald Post. Did you ever work with him? He's the psychiatrist from CIA?
2: I know the name, but I can't place him, but, uh, I, I do yeah. recognize the name.
1: I don't know. He used to do profiles of a lot of the terrorist leaders. So I uh, saw with Ramsey Yusuf, you might've bumped into him by accident.
2: Yeah, he worked. Uh, there was another doctor, um, that was actually associated with that same group that was murdered oh. at the front gate of the CIA, uh, by Miramal Kanzi, uh, who had came in to carry out the CIA shooting. Uh, and he actually worked in that same group too, that, that did a lot of, uh, uh the evaluation of, um, those kinds of videotapes and so forth. So, uh, it's oh. really a very fascinating and unique field for, uh you know, psychiatrists and psychologists.
1: Absolutely. Now, did I guess you can share whatever you can. And this is up to you, of course. Did Israel help a lot in any kind of counterintelligence over there?
2: Well, you know, the first thing you learn in, in basic special agent school is uh, there are no friendly intelligence services. Let me <laughs> repeat that again. There are no friendly intelligence services. Having said that, you do have liaison relationships with intelligence services, to help you on specific problems. So this was one of those specific problems that uh, we certainly looked towards the Israeli intelligence services, predominantly the Mossad, and ask for intelligence and ask for help. And also, and I did this myself on many occasions, when I would debrief an American hostage, I would show the hostage a picture of the missing Uh, Israeli hostage and say, uh, do you recall ever seeing this person in captivity with you? And then that information would be fed back to the uh, Israeli intelligence services. uh, And but to be to be quite blunt, they they were just as befuddled as us uh, as it pertains to uh, locational data at that time period. They were looking for their hostage, much like we were. Much like the Brits, MI6, you know, were looking for their hostages, and we had French hostages, and we had the DGSE. And so, even collectively, none of us could figure it out. And wow. uh, but we had uh, intelligence relationships uh, predominantly through the State Department and the CIA with all of the Western intelligence services uh, to learn data about hostages. To include the Germans, I I forgot to mention that uh, during that time period, we also had German hostages. You know, I I thought about this, you know, in retrospect, you know, it's it's amazing what you think about in retrospect, right? But we probably should have convened a conference either at uh, CIA headquarters or London, MI5, MI6, wherever, uh, and bring all the different units and groups together to try to collaborate. But again, uh, that's easier said than done uh, when it comes to the intelligence services. So it so wasn't
1: a central command for all the international. No, in there wasn't.
2: You would like to think that places like Interpol uh, would yeah. help. But you know they, they really kind of stayed away from terrorism, political violence issues during those days. Uh, now, we had a centralized location inside the CIA called the Hostage Location Task Force, the HLTF. And that was an internal U.S. government uh, entity, you know, combined of uh, CIA, State Department, FBI, and Pentagon. And we would meet uh, weekly and actually work out of that location as leads would develop uh, or as we got together before we would debrief a hostage and so forth so but there was no like man from uncle kind of organization that uh, was overseeing all of this
1: ah uh, you're aging is man from uncle what yeah some of,
2: yeah some of your viewers or listeners are going to have to google the man from uncle <laughs> do
1: you remember the name of the actor for that show i forgot
2: now united nation combined law enforcement i believe it was called united nations combined law enforcement i think it's what it's that stood for
1: oh that's good I, yeah i didn't remember the acronym i can't even remember the lead actor
2: oh i oh i know the, Is the it players Vaughn? are like what well, was uh napoleon solo and Ilya Kuryakin <laughs> were the two uh <laughs> I, that was my time frame growing up but uh yeah, uh, at, um, yeah. At at times when I was in the government, I kind of viewed it as more like "Get Smart" than I did "The Man from U.N.C.L.E." <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, and I think the days of "I Spy" was a little bit too um, too. Oh, horrible. I love that show. Yeah, yeah, that's another
2: good one. That was another yeah. good one. Yeah.
1: We can have a whole show. We can have a whole show just doing uh, reminiscing.
2: <laughs> yeah, count me in for that. I'm 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 on board with that. <laughs> yeah, that
1: would be a fun episode. <laughs> Let me ask you this then. Um, we kind of you kind of alluded to it the, the complexities of working in that environment and we're not knowing really who's on your side or not. Were you able to ever recruit civilians for help to try to get information out of them and try to get them to spy anything of that nature? We
2: we tried like hell, uh, and you know one of the offshoots of this was my unit. Uh, we ran the Rewards for Justice program. The the, the $20 million for bin Laden program that, that most people recognize that. It's a wonderful program inside the State Department hosted by the Diplomatic Security Service. And we created uh, public service announcements. Uh, we created little matchbooks uh, with uh, pictures of wanted terrorists on them. We had wanted posters, which you know, quite frankly, I, I think have become somewhat collectors' items today. And uh, and what we did with those is, we said how we can how can we distribute these in places like Beirut uh, or Karachi, Pakistan, or Islamabad. And uh, we went around and and worked with the U.S. embassies in those locations and the host government. Which we got hit and miss cooperation from, as you can imagine, because you know nobody wants the Americans routing around inside their country offering rewards, you know, to bring terrorists to justice. But uh, most of the success, well, I, I will say this: the successes we did have on my watch, which would have ran from the mid '80s to the late '90s were as a result of the Rewards for Justice program, and and that's offering money for information. And uh, we were able to thwart uh, a good number of plots and plans as a result of that. And we were also able to utilize that program uh, to capture uh, international terrorists. And, you know, it's a lot, it sounds a lot sexier than it practically was, but (laughs) You know, in, in many ways, it was nothing more than if you know where this person is and you want to make some money, reach out to us and we'll, we'll meet you. You'll, you'll have confidentiality. And if you provide good information, not only will we pay you, but we'll resettle you to the United States. We'll put you in the witness security program ran by the United States Marshals. We'll give you a new identification. We'll create a new life for you uh, in the good old U S of a. And so, uh, that program has been highly successful and I would certainly encourage any of your listeners or viewers that are, that want more about that, to check out their website. They've got an awesome website. And, you know, I'm very proud of the fact of being involved with the start of that program. And I still have one of the original, uh, reward posters that we designed, uh, which, uh, is, you know, was put together literally on a napkin uh, before we got our graphics bureau to create it.
1: Fast. What's the name of the website again? Do you know?
2: Uh, I, it's called the rewardsforjustice.org.
1: Rewardsforjustice.org, folks. The Rewardsforjustice.org. I'm going to do something that I saw. I think it'd be kind of interesting, if you don't mind. I want to read, just read a couple paragraphs from your book. And we can talk. we, we can kind of go over that a little bit, too. By the way, again, folks, the book is called Beirut Rules the Murder of the CIA uh, CIA Station Chief. And maybe it's really fascinating when you read this, we'll try to tease the audience a little bit. So here's the excerpt from the book. Locals referred to it as thunder and lightning, thuds of distant artillery followed by explosive flashes of fire and destruction. Most nights were like this. An orchestra of serenading car, car horns would be punctuated by the chatter of heavy machine guns and sporadically interrupted by the sonic booms of fighter jets, but tonight had been quiet. Now, folks, if you listen to my podcast, The Situational Awareness, when you look for anomalies, that stands out. (laughs) If you're used to hearing something and now all of a sudden it disappears. The ambulance crews who normally shuffled from one kill zone to another passed the hours playing backgammon while sipping from cups of bitter Turkish coffee. The all-night falafel stands, we'll ask you about that in a minute, the brisk business on nights when people didn't die. The American was up long before dawn. His alarm clock ringing at five thirty sharp. He showered, ate a breakfast of fruit and cereal, then dressed as a light breeze rolled into his one-bedroom flat. Every night he picked out his clothes for the next day, and uh, hung them on a closet door—an old habit from his many years of military service. And when the story continues. This is just the prologue of the book, folks, and
2: look- stands. Not in the location that that uh, Bill Buckley was kidnapped from because um, you know he was in no man's land uh, after mm-hmm. his abduction, and it was an area that was became a denied zone and uh, pretty much put off limits because of the the kidnappings that it you know had taken place and and so forth so you know strategically, I think one of the takeaways from that is if you look at the sequence of events, meaning we knew that all roads of international terror led to Beirut. And in 1983, you have the eyes and ears of the US intelligence community decimated with the embassy bombing, with the CIA station losing all their people. So literally you have no intelligence footprint there. You don't have any eyes and ears operating there the Americans fled. You have a skeleton crew on ground. Uh, and Bill Buckley, who you just mentioned, uh, volunteers to go to Beirut. And, and this man had been a war hero. As a young man right out of high school, he volunteers uh, with the first cab and goes to Korea, where he's awarded the Silver Star for rushing a machine gun nest as an 18-year-old young man. Wow. He comes back to the United States, goes to college on the GI Bill at Boston University, and then he becomes one of Kennedy's first Green Berets and goes off to Vietnam, where he is awarded his second Silver Star for heroism.
1: So he was a SOG?
2: Yes. Oh, wow. And then he becomes a CIA officer in the paramilitary side of the house Mm -hmm. and he bounces all around the world at all of these hot spots that you know have flared up in the Vietnam generation and he is an older man when he volunteers to go to Beirut to set up the intelligence operation he says I'll go send me and this was a man who was constantly running towards danger his entire career. And that is what also drew me to telling his story because although it ends very tragically, this is a man who volunteers to serve his nation and died serving our great country in a horrific way. And I, my, my motivation One of my motivations for writing this was, besides guilt of not doing more to to find him, was to tell a story of an American hero and one that needed to be told of here's this lone man who has had this incredible career and goes where nobody else really wanted to go and uh, ends up, you know, kidnapped and murdered himself.
1: It's intense. That's intense. I didn't realize he was a, a SOG as well. How? When you say older man, do we know how, how, what was he? Late fifties. So relevant. Bill was
2: Bill was fifty five years old when he was kidnapped. Yeah, I, I know some fifty five
1: year old Green Berets that I wouldn't mess with. <laughs> so he's right.
2: the, he's still pretty
1: dangerous even at fifty five.
2: Right, right. Yeah. And his career had spanned from uh, the Korean War to Beirut. And that's unfortunately where his life ended. Yeah.
1: terrible. Do we, do we know how long he was held hostage?
2: As best we can determine, he was kidnapped in March of 1984. And we believe he died in June of 1985. Uh, yes. We were hard pressed. You know, we put a date of June 3rd, 1985. But that was almost a little bit like fuzzy math because what we tried to do was piece together uh, predicated on other hostages that he was held with and come up as best we possibly could with a date. And, you know, I talk about this in Beirut rules, Carlos, one of the, one of the more shocking moments in my career was when um, we were debriefing an American hostage in Wiesbaden And the first question we asked was when did you last see Bill Buckley? And the hostage said, well, Bill's dead. And you could have sucked the air out of the room. If you picture this small little conference room and this air force facility, and there's three of us sitting around talking to this hostage and we had no idea he had died. And we're kind of look at each other and, um, I knew at that moment that we had failed. We had failed miserably, and we took a break, and we all like walked out in the hallway and kind of looked at each other and said, "Oh my god!" And so I went and actually called back to the National Security Council and said, "Hey, uh, this is what happened, and the hostage saying Bill's dead." And of course, you get the armchair generals around the Potomac. Uh, are you sure? Well, we're not sure, but this is what the hostage said. And then we go back and talk to the hostage in in detail. And he literally had heard bill crying out coughing and, and the other hostages were, were telling the guards, you know, he needs medical help, bring in a doctor. The man's really, really sick. You know, bill was delusional and then literally, there's nothing. There's silence, and you could hear the host, the hostage at, at this point that we were debriefing said, you know, the next thing I hear is shuffling of feet and whispers, and and he literally took his hand and hit the table like this, and he said, Jeez. that was the sound of Bill's head hitting the steps as it was being dragged down the, the staircase at this flat in Beirut. And all of us just stopped. And, you know, we we had to kind of gather ourselves at that moment. And I went back and reported that update back to Washington. And, and you know, having said that, uh, we were successful in recovering Bill's body on December 27th, 1991, which would have been about six years after he died. And uh, we also recovered... Um, Lieutenant Colonel Rich Higgins, uh, a Marine officer that was working for the United Nations at the time. Uh, and we recovered his body as well. And, and, um, we're able to bring them home and, and, you know, they're buried, give them a proper funeral and so forth. And, you know, Bill's family, Carlos, um, were just wonderful to work with on putting this story together. And, and so was Mrs. Higgins, you know, at the time her husband was kidnapped in Beirut, you know, she was a Marine officer at the time too. And what, what matters to someone like me, when you're putting together one of these stories is uh, both families were, were very appreciative of the efforts that we undertook to keep the memory of their loved one alive. And um, that means a lot when you do one of these kinds of books. And um, but bill deserved better than what we gave him um but we certainly tried we just lacked the technology lacked the human intelligence sources to help and and but we learned a lot of lessons as a result of that and you know there's always positives that comes that come out of these tragedies
1: i'm sure he probably realizes that too because everybody realizes that a lot of times sometimes we learn things from tragedies and mistakes in life right it makes us better and stronger and sometimes their legacy is they taught us something
2: yeah and bill you know i i think bill i've thought long and hard about this um, many 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 nights and days um you know you get that obviously you get the second guessing well why didn't bill see the surveillance uh why didn't he recognize that he was under watch and you know this was a man who was living had been living on the edge and, and wars forever literally his entire uh, adult life and he knew the risks he knew exactly what he was getting himself into uh did he know he was going to be kidnapped that day no you know we had no intelligence to indicate that whatsoever Uh, and i'm sure if he could have escaped he would have escaped uh, or died trying uh but you know it's easier said than done when you're surrounded by a gang of thugs with weapons as to what you're going to do in that moment in time and he just never had an opportunity to escape and um but once bill was taken and um You know, that changed protection forever for the CIA, meaning uh, you can look at the result of that tragedy and and put it in context that there hasn't been another case like that, you know, since 1984. And in many ways, there never will be because, you know, the protection for people like Bill uh, is so much better today. And, you know, sometimes in this life and, you know, you do have to learn the hard lessons and, and we certainly learned the hard lessons, you know, in the, in the eighties operating there in Beirut.
1: I guess my last question in regards to this, and then I wanted to ask you two questions left. Um, One of them, I can't remember if you mentioned this in the book or not, but maybe you can give your take on it. It was said that he was tortured by a psychiatrist, Aziz Alabab. Was that confirmed?
2: Well, uh, we believe so. Uh, we we think that uh, Hezbollah and Iran uh, spared no expenses, uh, brought in uh, subject matter experts to debrief Bill on uh, sources, uh, CIA operations, CIA tradecraft, um, you name it. And it became almost like an intelligence bazaar in, in our eyes that, uh, the Iranians would want to trade, horse trade that intelligence or access to Bill to a range of different actors and, and use a range of different tactics. Uh, you know, we know for a fact from debriefing the, the other hostages that lived that, you know, the Iranians would would literally, you know, st- string them up, uh, beat them with belts, um, hit the soles of their feet with, you know, AK-47 butts, uh, slap them around uh, sleep deprivation, uh, you know, the whole gamut. And, uh, we strongly suspected that they were getting guidance from, from folks that, uh, in in their world, they suspected was best practices, you know, for, for debriefing a intelligence, you know, bonanza source like Bill Buckley was. It's
1: a good point. I guess my last question is, you're obviously you're the executive director at Ontic, O-N-T-I-C folks, and Hezbollah hasn't really gone away. Um, people don't hear much about them, which is fascinating to me, uh, especially because the, they're pretty prevalent in South America and that tri-border region. They're now they're I think they're also in, in uh, Mexico. They're related. You know they do negotiations with the cartel. and Strange bedfellows, as Shakespeare once said. Um, what's your take on that? today? Do you see them because we know in 2008, I forgot the name of the individual. They, they, they captured that one mastermind over there from again, another mastermind from Lebanon. Oh, I forgot his name. Um, well, I'll remember it in a minute. Unless you remember
2: it. Are you talking <laughs> about the uh, assassination of Emad uh, Mognia in that. Damascus? That's yeah. the
1: one. Yeah. So what's your take on today? Are they just as dangerous? Have they gotten bigger? Have they gotten weaker? Do you know?
2: They are forced to be reckoned with. Uh, literally, uh, they have uh, elected representatives in the Lebanese parliament. Uh, they have uh, an intelligence service that uh, is, first and foremost, uh, very first rate. Uh, they have an extraordinary amount of Iranian funding and training that they can call upon, uh, meaning... Uh, The Iranians really don't have to operate in Beirut because Hezbollah can do all that for them. Uh, So they can have uh, subject matter expertise and trade craft. Uh, They also, to your point, uh, are a global global conspiracy network of criminal activity uh, where uh, they're engaged in money laundering, stolen cars, Uh, stolen baby formula, uh, weapons and vehicles moving south through Mexico, uh, heavy into drug running. Uh, They've they they've carried out operations all over the globe from a terrorism perspective. And, you know, the one takeaway from this organization that 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 I still don't think we have a good handle on is I still believe they're extraordinarily difficult to penetrate. Uh, meaning get human sources inside, and they have consistently, since the 1980s, surprised us with attacks. And if you look at the last time they actually went to war with Israel, that was a hard-fought war. And any um, the, the Israeli IDF soldier that, or IAF soldier that you talk to will tell you that. So a tough um, group, too. <laughs> they are a very tough group with a global reach. So, um, I think if you look at the from a forecasting perspective, you know, over the next 20 years, they're going to continue to grow and get stronger. And they have, uh, you know, the Iranian puppet masters to help them accomplish whatever it is they want to accomplish.
1: You know, Fred would love to bring you back and, and maybe talk more about current stuff as well. Yeah, it'd be really interesting.
2: My so, pleasure. Well,
1: Yeah, that'd be really interesting, especially since you're part of that network and you're pretty involved in it. Whatever you can share, of course, some stuff you can't. Um, Again, folks, the book, Beirut Rules, the Murder of a CIA Station Chief. I'm telling you, we just touched the tip of the iceberg. (laughs) There's a lot going on in this book. Um, I wish I could keep Fred here for three more hours so you can can hear more of the stories and more of the the involvement of them trying to find Bill Buckley, uh, another American hero that we've lost. Um, but we just can't, we don't have that kind of time, but I highly recommend Beirut Rules, The Murder of a CIA Station Chief. Look, I actually recommend all the books. They're they're really fascinating reads to really see what's going on. These are unsung heroes, folks, that we don't get to see a lot in the media. Um, They're too focused on other nonsense. So their books are Ghosts, Confessions of a Counterterrorism Agent, Chasing Shadows, A Special Agent's Lifelong Hunt to Bring a Cold War Assassin to Justice, and Under Fire, The Untold Story of the Attack in Benghazi. Fred, thank you so much again for being here.
2: Thank you so much for having me on. I really, really appreciate uh, your interest and concern about Bill's story. Yeah, an American American hero
1: just like yourself. Thank you, everyone. Make sure to share, subscribe, hit that like button. Truly appreciate it